0: Welcome to Care Talk, your happy home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Hey, John, it took you a while, but you finally found a guest to bring on the show who knows something about healthcare. What's the story? Well, Nancy Ann
1: Pearl not only gets it, but she helped craft it at CMS, at the White House. Uh, and was one of the key architects for Obamacare. So finally, I have someone to help argue my side of the argument. And maybe I'll win this time,
0: David. We shall see, John. I'll, I'll let you tee up the questions. You probably rehearsed them in advance is all I could say. Welcome, Nancy Ann. Thank you. Great to be here, I, I think.
1: <laughs> so, so Nancy Ann, maybe you could um, – You've got a a stellar policy background, but tell us a little bit about what got you interested in healthcare and tell a little bit about your earlier career that uh, before you got to all these white houses you worked in.
2: Well, I started off in country music and I wasn't talented enough to do that. (laughs) Not as a performer, as a, as a lawyer. So I started my career in Nashville and there were two major Uh, businesses in Nashville then. And now there are more, but they're still two of the dominant ones, which is the music industry and the healthcare industry. And my law firm uh, represented a number of music companies, including what was then called RCA Records. It's still a label, but it's part of BMG now. Um, So I represented RCA and a big litigation that Elvis Presley's uh, widow, Priscilla Presley and Lisa Marie Presley, sued RCA over one of Elvis's records. Um, And it was representing a couple of country music artists and really trying to get into that. And I realized that um, I'm not discerning enough when it comes to talent uh, management. I thought everyone was wonderful because just the idea that you could get up there and sing was was so uh, amazing to me. Um, And it was around then that I was offered the opportunity to work on some healthcare litigation that the firm was doing. Um, actually, some litigation on behalf of Vanderbilt, and I found it fascinating. And I realized that a lot of threads in my life had kind of come together um, there because, um, in my life, healthcare was something that really mattered. It mattered, um, as, as you and I have discussed. My mom died when I was when I was about seventeen, and um, she died of lung cancer. Um, she had insurance. She was lucky she worked for the state of Tennessee, but she actually didn't die of the cancer. She died because she, um, went back to work sooner than she should have because she was worried about losing her job and losing her insurance and leaving three kids without anything. Um, you know, so that plus my grandmother was, uh, in the initial group of people who were eligible for Medicare and I, it's funny the things you remember, but I can actually remember sitting at her kitchen table, with her little box of bills, and her talking about President Johnson having signed Medicare and wondering if it would help her. Um, so it's such a interesting twist of fate that I ended up running the Medicare program years later.
1: But how? But didn't you? You ended Weren't you involved in running the Medicaid program in Tennessee?
2: Um, Sort of. So I ran the Tennessee Department of Human Services, which did the eligibility determination for Medicaid. Um, and we all and we did run directly the AFDC, the former welfare program, the food stamps program, foster care and all those things. And so I was on a commission that our, the governor who I worked for um, when he was elected, he said he wanted to tackle the problem of, you know, what he called indigent health care. Poor and and working class people across Tennessee who could not afford health care services. So we had a commission that went across the state and met with people and met with hospitals. And what came out of that eventually was 10 care, uh, which many people have forgotten, but it was really the it was the first eleven fifteen waiver. We
1: used the, which is a Medicaid managed care right. For the state and federal program for the poor. Was that the one of the first ones, Nancy? It? it
2: was the first. Um, in fact, uh, Bill Clinton famously, um, in his initial meeting with President George H. W. Bush, you know, they have the traditional meeting after the new president's elected. This was the issue he raised: states won eleven fifteen waivers. That was the issue that he raised with with uh, President Bush because President Bush had turned down the ten the ten care waiver. So Bill Clinton, President Clinton, um, granted it. And it formed really the foundation for, um, for the Massachusetts waiver later, which followed. Everyone talks about Romney Care as being a basis for the Affordable Care Act, but actually, 10Care was the, the first uh, foundation because what it did was say to hospitals, right now you're receiving um, large amounts of disproportionate share money, the so called dish that is based on the numbers of, of poor and um, indigent people that a, that a hospital covers so instead of getting those um, checks uh, we're going to use that money and match it up with people who don't have insurance coverage and give them coverage instead and it was covered under Medicaid so that's how that whole thing came about
1: it's really one of the early areas of value-based care putting putting health care on a budget which we talk a lot about so how did you get in how did you get into the Clinton White House? Through
2: Governor Ned McWhorter, my um, mentor in Tennessee. So when I was at the University of Tennessee in undergraduate school, I was the student body president. And we used to go over to Nashville and lobby the state legislature for things that we needed because students' positions on things, because the state legislature ran basically the state university. Got to know Governor, well, Speaker Ned McWhorter, who'd been Speaker of the House for 20 years or more. And uh, when he was elected, he asked me to come in to his um, cabinet. So that's how I became the Tennessee Commissioner of Human Services. And he was good friends with uh, then Governor Clinton. And in fact, um, when I was moving to Washington in 91, uh, I had dinner with Governor Porter at the residence. We're sitting there. This is before cell phones and all that sitting out there having dinner outside. And one of his um, aides comes and says, Governor, I have a call for you from um, Governor Clinton. He picks up the phone. He says, hey, Billy Bob. That's what he called him. Hey, Billy Bob, how are you doing? And that's when Bill Clinton told him, this was September of 91, that he was planning on running for president.
1: Though You, you spent some time in the Clinton administration. Bill Clinton tried to get a version of managed care, managed competition as it was at the time passed. What lessons did you take from that to uh, that sort of number of failed attempts to make that happen that you then uh, applied in the Obama administration? Because you've got to have brought, it's not just, you know, some war wounds, but uh, politically speaking, but also some insights. A lot, a lot
2: of, a lot of scars. And and one of them was that um, the Clinton Health Plan um, changed everything. It changed health care, not only for people who didn't have insurance, but for people who had employer-sponsored insurance. And I have a vivid recollection of sitting in my office one day and thinking, so if this passes, um, I'll go into the D.C., what did we call them? Connector, I forget, whatever we called it. Um, I don't really want to do that. Why do I have to change? I have insurance, and I and sort of realizing if that's how I feel about it, how does the average American with employer-sponsored insurance feel about it? So the way President Obama approached this, having had these learnings, and Rahm Emanuel and I uh, gave each other a pinky promise that we weren't going to come out of this with nothing because there were multiple opportunities to to have gotten. Uh, we had. Unlike this time with the Obama administration, we had a half dozen uh, very serious Republican efforts at covering the uninsured, moving forward on on quality uh, and access. And we said no to all of them. And kind of let them off the hook. And, you know, time was not our friend. And so um, we made a pinky promise to each other that we weren't going to come out of this with nothing. So don't try to do too much. Don't come out of this with nothing. Those were two, those were two lessons. And so we President Obama really wanted to um, you know fix the parts of this that were broken without breaking the parts that were working okay. Um, that means necessarily building on the employer-based system, which Covered then and still covers today the vast majority of people. You know, there's a lot of debate going on right now. Was that the right calculus? Should we have tried harder, um, you know, to have a to have a single payer system that wasn't even in the cards? You know, to people who say that, I I would love to sit down with them and walk through the votes that we had in the in the United States Senate at that time. So anyway, that's. We learned a lot. We learned a lot.
0: Nancy, do you remember uh, Harry and Louise back from those uh, days? I, <laughs> did you ever meet them? Indeed,
2: indeed, I do. No, I never. I never did meet them. But I'm good friends with Chip Khan, who was the the uh, person who pervaded that
1: ad. But it, but you, but you you seem to have navigated the the slings and arrows. So it was it was a tight victory. Now we've Obamacare is the law of the land, and as of the most recent Supreme Court decision. Absent the legal and political challenges, how are we doing against what you folks laid out as a as 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 uh, coverage, value equity?
2: Well, thank God we have it. I'll say that Um, it's a foundation that we can build on. It is a uh, it's imperfect. No one knows that, you know, better than I do. But given the assignment, which was to build on the current system. Try to bring down the rate of healthcare cost growth, to address the number of people who were uninsured and reduce that. Make improvements in uh, moving towards value, improving quality. Um, I think on all those things, I would give it a pretty pretty good marks. It's not as affordable as people wanted it to be. There are a number of reasons for that, um, starting with you know all the undermining of it and the undermining of the marketplaces and the fact that states, uh, there's a, still a dozen states that haven't expanded Medicaid, which needed to happen. So um, lest I drift into history again, I will say, um, you know, to me, this is a little bit like the Timex watch. Some you, Both of you are probably too young to remember John Cameron Swayze and his ads where they had the, the diver jump
0: off the David's older than he looks. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Come on.
2: Right, right. He would jump off the cliffs of Acapulco and you know go in a washing machine with the Timex watch, and it would come out ticking. And I believe that's a little bit the way the Affordable Care Act is. And you know, lest I lest I jinx it, I would say that uh, last week's decision, you know, felt to me like uh, it's now seven 2 We now have uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Basically saying, "Look, this is over," uh, and even uh, Senator Cornyn said, "We're moving on." Um, you know,
0: famously from the state that brought the
1: lawsuit. So, so, David, so David, there you go. Now you've got to live with it. You can't criticize it anymore.
0: I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna live with it, John. But listen, you know, uh, Nancy and we were very interested in the, on the. Uh, the blog post you wrote for health affairs along with uh with some colleagues back in January, and, and you had sort of three overarching things that you were focusing on about access, affordability, and equity. And we I think we both really liked the way you laid that out into into like five policy priorities and then went then went deeper on that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what the thinking was behind that post and kind of how we're doing, not just with the, you know, SCOTUS deciding to rule in a, you know, in a rational way, but you know, are we making progress on those kind of three big areas? Are those policy priorities being implemented? Is there any bipartisan move for those, or is it just a kind of a you know stalemate?
2: Well, our group our group was bipartisan and it was policy wonks mainly or people who are operating the healthcare industry, so it's not perhaps uh, representative of the population at large. Um, our our ambition was to set forth for the then unnamed new HHS secretary, what we thought he or she should be working on and prioritizing. And, uh, you know, there were debates, certainly in our group, as I said, it was bipartisan, but really not about the major priorities. Uh, we elevated, one thing I want to note is that we elevated equity because uh, we, you know, the commentary that we had was, you know, this is always on people's lists, but it's never high enough. It's never the thing never something that's really you know helping to drive policy and we're at that point now where especially with the pandemic we saw uh, we we saw and we continue to see what a disproportionate impact um, it has had on populations that are lower income uh, you know communities that are black and brown and etc so we elevated that we said now's the time to really make uh, you know a, a, a real effort to to do something on affordability out of the box. I think the administration would have to get good marks there and Congress as well for moving forward to make the Affordable Care Act um, tax credits and subsidies more affordable. You've seen what a what a huge uptake there's been since they opened up the marketplaces again. Um, the, the key will be, can they hang on to that? But I believe they'll be able to. So you know, the playbook is really, in my view, um, a lot of what's happened in California over the last couple of years. They have very competitive marketplace. They've kept premium increases in the um, Affordable Care Act marketplaces in California, the California, um, cover California, down to less than a percent. Uh, They've got very... um, enthusiastic participation. They've had a more heavily regulated marketplace, arguably, because they've said, if you want to be in the Medicaid market in California, Medi-Cal, then you need to be in this too. Uh, But I think it's worked well and it works for the insurers too, because it gives them, um, the state's making efforts to market, get people in the marketplaces. That's what drives uh, the virtuous cycle that that we need for insurance to really work. So that's where I think um, the Biden administration and Congress need to go and I hope that they will. With respect to value, I think um, we're seeing, uh, you know, CMMI is taking a hard look at what it should be doing. I think the Trump administration, to its credit, did a lot to, um, you asked about whether there's bipartisan agreement. You know, when when, um, Secretary Price came into the office over at the Humphrey Building, a lot of us thought there goes CMMI, uh, because he had been one of the most ardent foes of it. He didn't like the demonstrations about um, hips and joints and he didn't like any of that. He became a believer because he saw, hey, this is a way to, to try out things that maybe we want to do too. And I would say that Secretary Azar was even more devoted to it. And I, and I actually agree with him uh, that probably we need to move towards more mandatory demonstrations and away from just demonstrations where, you know, you cause a lot of risk selection and you invite people to try things out. If you really want to move more rapidly, that's probably where we are now.
0: You know, one of the other things that you mentioned in the post was about home-based care, which was clearly uh, you know a big deal during the pandemic and also John's hobby horse. Um, do you think that we're going to see that kind of outliving the pandemic is the kind of the home-based care uh is more of a temporary blip.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely and you know with respect to that telehealth. I mean, this is it's absurd that the original telehealth rules were written when I was the administrator of CMS in 1997 and 1998 and they haven't you know measurably been changed since then. So it was still the case you could only get telehealth in certain rural areas and only if, you know, you, were, you came to an originating site, a site of service. Um, you couldn't do it in your home. You couldn't do it if you were, you know, living in New York or in an urban area. And it just makes no sense, either in terms of Medicare's um, purpose and cost structure or anyone else's these days. So yes, I don't think that genie goes back in the bottle. I'm, I'm, I'm. I believe that will be um, the future. And having more services at home just makes a lot and of so sense. We're
1: we're obviously CareCentric's, hugely supportive of that. But Nancy I I'm still sort of struggling with how we get to a healthcare system that costs a lot less relative to the rest of the world. We while coverage is increasing, prices for everything, even in California. Still are going up to the roof. And it is, you know, it, it's no law, lo- it probably is. Health costs are still probably one of the leading cost drivers of bankruptcy in the United States. And I just, how do we break out of this ridiculous cycle of more and more money being consumed by the healthcare industrial complex?
2: So the Affordable Care Act, uh, by imposing um, constraints against lifetime limits and by Uh, protecting people in that way, um, has been shown through studies and analysis that have been done to have reduced the number of bankruptcies due to healthcare costs significantly. More can be done. And uh, I guess I would say to your question about uh, prices relative to other countries, look, um, Jerry Anderson and others did the work 20 years ago. It's the price is stupid. Um, We pay clinicians more in this country than in other countries. Uh, That's where it starts. We pay clinicians more, we pay hospitals more. Um, I guess I'll say something kind of provocative and controversial. This won't be new to to you two because you both do that. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't know that in a developed economy, the fact that we... uh, that we pay people more. um, And hopefully that will include not just the physicians, but the nurses and other people who are working at the bedside. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing for our economy. Um, I think if it starts to crowd out other spending that we need to be making, such as, you know, spending on national security or education or other things, then yes, it's a problem. But in in an economy that's continuing to grow, I don't know that that's, so much the problem. What what really is a problem to me, and this is this is was a problem when I was running Medicare. Um, it isn't the at that point actually interestingly home health was growing at thirty percent a year, um, and there were some reasons for that, mostly having to do with very little regulation around who could be in the home health industry, all that. But it isn't so much the proliferation of services that bothers me, or the demand. It's that we're not getting what we should be getting for that money. So as long as we're getting, um, you know, I don't have a problem with, in fact, I love Medicare Advantage. Um, It wasn't so long ago that Democrats really didn't like Medicare Managed Care. I think that we're past that point now. But it it used to be that people thought it was just an excuse to stint on care. Um, I think we've now seen that, in fact, uh, there are many plans that are doing an excellent job at providing the care that people need, not sitting on care. And if we pay them a little bit more to incentivize them to do that versus fee for service, unfettered you know, choice, which may or may not be a good thing for a senior, that doesn't bother me. But let's just get the metrics straight and let's make sure we're holding uh, plans and providers to them. Um, and then I think the prices kind of sort themselves out. I, I do. Th-
1: what about what about drug prices? You gotta. You, there's got to be something about high pricing in healthcare that you don't like. I mean, David likes higher prices in drugs, but most people don't. And it just feels like it's unsupported by anything other than sort of history and entitlement. Is there a solution there?
2: Well. Uh, I, I'm a little bit cynical about that. I admit, um, having, having seen some consulting work that was done around how to set prices for different pharmaceuticals, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. You know, it's uh, obviously something more competitive is the answer. And I, I do think that, that Part D works pretty well. Uh, But the concern, I think, that um, House Democrats in particular have is there's no uh, provision to allow the fee-for-service Medicare to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies. Not clear that fee-for-service Medicare could do a better job than than the various Part D plans do, but that just really sticks in their craw that somehow we set prices for hospitals and doctors, but when it comes to pharmaceuticals, you know that it's open season, and they can just set whatever launch price they want. So um, it feels to me like that—that that, you know the, the gig is up there. That 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 could be ending. That there, there's a good chance that something will pass that will allow uh, both secretary and negotiation, which may not produce that much, but also some uh, regulation around launch prices. That's what's in the bill that the House passed. Um, what a year ago now, and Nancy
0: and I have to I have to tell you that, that John actually tries to solve the drug pricing problem on every episode, and we're, we're coming up on our hundredth episode. So assuming that isn't going to happen, actually today completely.
1: I think it's a worthy cause, David, and let's. It's not just the launch price; they raise prices whenever they want to. Alex Azar, who it was a supporter of value based care in everything other than drug pricing, I might add since he presided over a company which jacked up the price of insulin. David, this is a cause worth taking on. All right, John. I
0: still I still have another question though. <laughs> Nonetheless. So we talked about four out of the five things from the Health Affairs post and I didn't hear us talk explicitly about the high value workforce. And I have a question about that. So certainly you've got, you know, physicians and surgeons that are paid well, some some others, but there's others in in the healthcare economy that aren't paid that well. And or maybe don't have the right training. So I'm wondering what you mean by a high value workforce. I'm also interested in if you have any view about how that might tie into immigration policy.
2: We have a nursing shortage right now. It is not for nurses who want to go help John at CareCentrics and work on as a, as a nurse leader in his executive team. It's for nurses who are willing to be at the bedside in the COVID unit or in the, the med surge unit you know, taking care of patients. And I don't even think it's as simple, uh, the economist in me thinks this should always be able to solve it, but I don't even think it's as simple as just paying more. I think we have to be more serious about redesigning what we do in the hospital to make that work better. And I I work with HCA, among others, who's really been focused on this because it's it's not going away. And yes, immigration is part of the answer. And that was brought... there. There have been um, special provisions for bringing nurses from other countries. Now, you know, mind you, it can cause problems for other countries, too, if we bring all the nurses here. But if we're just focused on the U.S., that is part of the solution. There are a lot of nurses who want to come here uh, and are willing to take those jobs working at the bedside. The Trump administration um, slowed down the processing, you know, to a ridiculous measure to where some of the companies that provide that staffing had to had to file Litigation to try to make them, uh, you know, approve what are already legal. This is legal immigration. This is not, you know, people slipping over the border to help out at a hospital. So that is part of the solution. I'm hopeful that that'll be fixed uh, relatively soon, uh, and we can look to that workforce to help meet some of our needs. But long term, you know, I guess. The optimist in me hopes that what we just went through with COVID, while it's been tough on a number of clinicians and certainly nurses have been retiring at rates that I haven't seen before, um, I hope it also has attracted a number of people who might not have been interested in healthcare before, might not have been sure about it, to see that this is a profession that really matters, that nursing and that taking care of patients um, really matters, whether it's testing, whether it's proctoring tests. You know, all of those things are really important. Public health, my goodness, you know, um, John and I have had conversations. I'm sure he shared with you some of his ideas around um, having, you know, a, a, a national health service corps that is really a bunch of people who come in just to help on things like this. Um, so I, I'm
0: hoping there will be people who want to help. Well, John, it's about time to wrap up. But before we do, do you want to ask one last question about drug pricing?
1: I, I think my with my 87-year-old mother who's a nurse is, is, is just so happy that we covered that topic. I think I'm good, David.
0: Great. Well, that's it for yet another edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Center. Thank you so much, Nancy Ann.